Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, players will wield a lightsaber, hone their force powers, and adventure across the galaxy in hopes of rebuilding the Jedi Order. Become a Jedi in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, available now on Xbox One, PS4, and PC, rated T for Teen. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zycam. This winter, trust Zycam to knock out a cold at the first sneeze of the season. Unlike other cold medicines that only mask cold symptoms, Zycam is clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. The homeopathic is sold in all major retailers, including Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Zycam cold remedy products are safe and effective. Visit Zycam.com watch to receive a $2 coupon on your next cold remedy purchase. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the preeminent dealer of black market Baby Yoda merch, it's Andy Greenwald. Ooh, it's a parking lot day, buddy. Yeah, and so I gotta say, what's the vibe? In, I hear they're cracking down. In, what do you they're mean cracking down on that merch? Right? Yeah, they are. Like they they've taken the gifts away. Like you can't gift Baby Yoda anymore. I think. Oh my. God. Big Bob came through with the eraser. Chris, that was the gift that kept on giving. Come on. Wow. All right. So you, you want to know about the vibe of the parking lot? I think people can tell it's going to be one of those A-plus episodes of the watch bot. Well, <laughs> I do have Amanda on to talk about episodes five through seven of the crown season three. So whatever we do is just, we're it's all gravy from here. God, episode seven. God, what is this? Binge mode? Relax, guys. <laughs> Um, yeah, Come on. Andy, what's your feeling? You know what? One thing is always interesting with pop culture is how <laughs> things just get away from creators. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. and this Baby Yoda thing, which I don't fully <laughs> get, because like a lot of it is uh-huh. like I'm going to tell my kids that these. I, I don't even know how that meme started, but you see that meme where it's like, it's like you know a picture of Ariana Grande, and it's like I'm going to tell my my kids that this was, I don't know, Janis Joplin. It's like, did you, yeah. have you seen that? What does that mean? I, I, Kaya, I, I do you mean, understand that meme? I have no idea what it means. Are you asking me for help? Yeah, do you know, but do you get that meme? <laughs> yeah, so the premise of the meme is like, the best one I saw was like a picture of the two property brothers. And it was like, I'm going to tell my kids that this was the chain smokers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, first of all, longtime listeners will know that might be the most delighted Kai has ever sounded to chime in on a watch <laughs> podcast. Second of all, Kai, do you know what the origin of the meme is, which is like the hardest part about this? Oh, no, I have no clue. Okay, because it's, it's too big at this point to ever find the origin. Greenwald, have you noticed where, where now it's like it, Harrison Ford will be trending and then it'll just be a million people being like, why is Harrison Ford trending? RIP? Question mark. Can I just pause for a second and say that is it too late to change our Wikipedia page or the Facebook page to say that The Watch is America's preeminent podcast in which a millennial explains memes to two old dudes? <laughs> like, this is quite a bit and yeah. quite a start for this podcast. Um, I wonder if there are other things Kaya can explain to us. But anyway, going on, so you're asking me if I've noticed trending topics on Twitter? There's two <laughs> things I want to know. Do you know... Chris, what does the search for? This is a this is a triptych of a conversation. I want to talk to you about <laughs> Baby Yoda and the commodification yeah. of Baby Yoda and whether or not okay. they intended Baby Yoda to be like 
a Care Bear, right? Because this is a very powerful right. being. And with great power comes great responsibility. Number two, right. I wanted to know if you were up on the meme where it's like, I'm going to tell my kids that this was this. And if you had any yeah. insight as to where that started. And number three, no what's up with trending topics not saying why things are trending? Okay. Um, boy, a lot to chew on there, Chris. Which one should I tackle first? Well, let's start with let's start with the name on everyone's lips, Baby Yoda. That just seems like a gimme, you know? I think it's pretty smart. I think that, uh, you know, I said on the last show when we were talking about The Mandalorian that, like, I think I'm I'm generally more allergic to things that feel particularly memeable or or intentionally cute. That said, one thing that John Favreau, who made the show, seems to have either learned from Kevin Feige in his time their time together at Marvel, or maybe they learned together, is basically like tell the cleanest, clearest version of the story and don't run away from the things that make it appealing. Yeah, and. You know, you have Muppets in Star Wars, and everyone loves Yoda. So it's just it's just two great tastes that go great together. You know, it it, it doesn't feel. Here's here's what I I'll, I'll say this with true respect. It does not feel overthought. You know what I mean? It does not feel like this was an idea that Favreau pitched, and that you know people sitting around the old I don't know Ewok campfire at Lucasfilm are like oh, but what does it mean? Because is it really Yoda? Or what are we going to say about it? What are we trying to say about it? It was like, no, that's cute. And that's a good idea. I bet bet they put a little bit more thought into it than that. (laughs) No, but I'm saying is they didn't overthink it to the point of like taking it off the board because they were concerned about what it might mean for continuity in the green alien space. You're kind of making it sound like the the boardroom of Lucasfilm is actually like inside SoCal with Kyle Mooney. And they're like, that would be sick, bro. (laughs) That would be hella is, tight can, if Yoda was a can baby. You pro- <laughs> can you prove to me that that's not how it happened? <laughs> like, can you definitively say that that's not what happened? Have you been, uh, um, oh, do you want to address any of my other somewhat tongue-in-cheek meme questions? I have to say no. I mean, I, honestly, I'm just glad that this is a safe space because I think probably the watch co-hosts of eight years ago when we started the podcast would probably be up on these and maybe even contributing a couple of these these hot prop brothers memes to the universe. But instead, the two of us had a spirited text chain this morning about uh, the impeachment hearings. So I feel like I just am glad that our audience is growing up. With well, it. I actually haven't really watched any of it live. And to speak to the, you know, the why is this trending thing? That's happening a lot too, where like we get a lot of Fiona Hill in my TL and I don't know why exactly. Yeah. Okay, name two other reasons why Dr. Fiona Hill... Ukraine expert would have been in your TL. Uh, <laughs> either she's she's endorsing Bernie Sanders, or okay, right. she did not care for my takes on Skyfall. I think it's probably one of the two, yeah. but we'll never say which. Um, I wanted to know: Did you have you been like? Do you, do you find like in your everyday life, like around the offices, while you guys are editing, and there's you know mm-hmm. d- different folks from Smail Corp and anonymous content, obviously milling mm-hmm. around. Uh, are people talking about the Mandalorian around you? Um, I did have a good conversation with Sam Esmail about it yesterday, and he's a big fan and will hear me saying this and probably wish that he had saved this take for, for when he was on the podcast. But I think that, honestly, so he, he really likes it, and we had a good talk about it, and obviously he'll be on the podcast at some point soon, and we can talk to him about it then. But 
I, it's a good question because I think the way to characterize the way people are talking about it is kind of similar to what we said on Monday, which is this is a fun thing. It feels weirdly depressurized at this moment, you know, in the way people talk about it. A couple weeks ago or months ago or even a year ago when it was announced, it felt like, oh, well, this is the first Star Wars show ever. So lots riding on it. This is the flagship service, flagship show on the Disney Plus um, launch, which is a you know multi-million, hundreds of millions of dollars expense for the company and obviously the future of the company. It's pretty impressive the way within two episodes and just like in about a week and a half, now people are like, that's a fun thing that I look forward to. And mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be worried or troubled over, you know, and part of that I think is because there's a baby Yoda, there's a dude with a mask and a gun, and there's episodes are short. So it doesn't feel you don't feel all the stress that went into it, which is not always the case with these sort of these service launching properties. Absolutely. I mean I, I, I think that around the office here People are like sincerely enjoying it. And I I think I was coming off as like a bit of a crank, but I think that you're right. I mean, there's, I think that there's something to the, uh, the way that they're telling the story that feels entirely like at ease. And, you know, I was talking with, you'll hear with me talking with Amanda about the crown later. And she and I kind of came to the conclusion that the way that they're making the show now is a model for sustainability where, you know, like they've obviously changed the cast, but in in some ways, even they're handing over the reins of of the story itself to different characters in a way that they didn't ever really figure out a way to do with a lot of the prestige shows that you kind of wondered whether like, oh, I wonder if they could just like keep making Mad Men or keep making Breaking Bad by like, you could have just followed Jesse out the gates right then and done El Camino right off the back. And in some ways they have figured that out with Breaking Bad because of Better Call Saul, which is coming back in February. But Star Wars feels like they actually hit upon a rhythm and a logic to this show where they can make it and not have it tip the scales too far in one direction or another and still have an enjoyable piece of entertainment. I would add one thing to that. I think, I think sustainable is an interesting word choice and one that actually uh, dovetails with the thing that Sam and I were talking about, which is that he was really impressed with the way Favreau has made the show. And I'm not, I wasn't really keyed into that. I'm not really paying close attention to the technical specs of it. But apparently, you know, they're shooting the show here in LA, well, in Manhattan Beach, and they've got a soundstage and probably more than one. But it is not green screen. It's all LED screen. Yeah. And this is, and it's working, right? It, I'm, I'm buying it. And it's kind of quietly revolutionary. Because I obviously, like the, the Avengers movies, all the Marvel movies, anytime we see one of these, like, just some friends palling around on set, photos it's like it's you know chris pratt and tom holland in half of their suits standing in front of a pile of rubble and a green screen yeah they're all wearing and that is balls, movies yeah. in atlanta doing it out here is significant because i think it you know it's obviously if other shows start doing fictional universe type shows like this you know uh vfx heavy shows like this people generally live actors live here they would rather work here than than in atlanta or any of the other nice places that have great tax credits but also that the LED screen aspect of it is sort of revolutionizing as well. So yeah. it's interesting. It, it clearly, of all the companies, Disney's the one that is going to want to make a lot of shows with people in fake places. And if they're building a whole new soundstage to do that, then we can expect a lot more shows like this, not just in the Star Wars universe. And correct me if I'm wrong, the LED thing is essentially when the actors are on stage, they are seeing projections of the world in which they are acting in on the walls, right? As opposed to a, as opposed to a giant green screen? Yes. 
I, my, my, listen, my knowledge of actual VFX stuff stops and starts with ping pong balls. So Sam like, said, where, you know, they're doing it with LED screens and you just sagely nodded, but you didn't say like, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> no, well, we did some LED, like with, the ease of use, I think, is a lot higher. Okay. And the fact that they've invested in the studio here is significant. I could walk back in right now into his office and ask him, but he's also in the middle of editing episode 411 of Robot right now, and it's a lot. Yeah, and Andy and I will eventually talk about Robot. I know a lot of people have been asking us to to weigh in on this final season, and especially some of the oh, most yeah. recent episode that everybody is really fired up about. But we're trying to save save that up for a special occasion. I saw people were assuming that it was like a, a church and state thing or whatever. I'm excited to talk about the season. We talked about the season premiere. I'm just behind, like I'm behind on everything. And yeah, we, we're going to try to get it together for, uh, you know, for when maybe we get a chance to talk to the person who made it, yeah, hypothetically. Well, you're, you're like just sitting there, you got 12 hours a day of impeachment hearings. So there's only so many hours <laughs> of the day. Believe me, that's what, yeah. There are like five screens in each editor bay and like <laughs> at least four of them. And all your all your uh, pro-Dr. Fiona Hill burners that you're operating on TweetDeck. <laughs> Dude, I'm, she's the most compelling TV character of the year. Um, do you want to give everybody an update on how things are going with, uh, with Briar Patch? Sure. Do you, should I do it now? When a man is wheeling two office chairs on asphalt, <laughs> is that? Are you sure it's happening in real life, or is it an LED screen? <laughs> I wouldn't know. I honestly wouldn't know yeah. the difference. Yeah. Um. Yeah, man. We are still here. We are still editing. We are finishing up revisions on episode eight. We're working on episode nine. Ten is looming, and it's totally surreal. It's very strange. Episodes are locking now. Um, for people who don't know what any of the things I just said mean, is that basically the editing process is we shoot film, we get dailies, obviously. The editor is waiting in LA, gets all the footage, assembles an editor's cut. Um, under DGA rules, the director then joins the editor once the assembly is done and gets four days to make his or her cut of the episode and then pieces out. And then I sit there <laughs> with the editor and... Uh, keep working at it and mm-hmm. reframe it and reshape it and sometimes reorder it and remove things and add lines. And then, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to have the aforementioned Sam come in and, and give, give great and helpful notes on it. And we keep tweaking he, it. And he's like, it, it needs the, more baby Yoda. He's like, I love what you did with the led screen here. And I just nod. <laughs> um, we, uh, send it to the network, send it back. And eventually we lock picture which means then once that means we're not making any more changes to the way it looks, well, then the effect stuff is done, color correction, and then we do sound mixing. So it's like the kind, it's just almost impossible for my brain to understand where we are progress wise, because at this moment I'm talking to you, I think episodes one, three, four, five, and six are locked, but two, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 are not. And so I'm sort of jumping between all of them at the same time. And it's a little bit crazy making, but it's a little bit awesome too. I wanted to ask so much, so much creative work here in post. I wanted to ask about the idea of jumping between them at this, at the same time. So like at any given day, do you have cuts of multiple episodes kind of up and running on different machines? Um, on the best days, well, not the best days, but on certain fluid days, I can jump between, cause I have three editors. Um, each editor, two of the editors have three episodes they're responsible for, and one has four. And so theoretically, I could jump between them and say, make these changes here, I'll check back with you, check these changes here, I'll, I'll check back with you, et cetera, et cetera. More often than not, I get bogged down with one because we really just go scene by scene, mm-hmm. line by line, and then just 
until it's done. But it's but yes, I mean, yesterday I was giving notes on the opening of ten, reviewing music cues that we got in from our amazing composer for nine, and then screening eight for Sam and taking his notes and talking to him about what was going on here and there. So it's constantly active between all of them. And I think I said this when we were making the show. That's the hardest part for me, honestly, is that kind of like galaxy brain, four-dimensional yeah, time. The non-linear thinking. Keep it track all of it in your head at the same time. And it was really hard writing it, and it was hard producing it. And now in the edit, not only is it hard to do, it's also hard to be confronted with all the times that you may have forgotten something. Right. <laughs> or weren't tracking something. Like, oh, that the last time we saw this character, he was, he was upset about this, and they seem awfully nonchalant in the performance here. Sure. So little, little, little things like that. Okay. Because I, I, you know, I was thinking about like the way in which like even when you're just like say looking at like a, I know this is not a good comparison to like making a TV show but the way in which you wind up like if you're looking at a browser and you're you're clicking between tabs and you can have like different emotional reactions to different pieces of content that you're seeing on your screen at any given moment but you can also yeah. channel surf between those emotional reactions like whether or not there was a similar experience jumping in and out of what might be a funny scene what might be a dramatic scene or an action scene and also yeah. happening in different temporal moments of the of the show itself it's funny um i just stepped out of the session on on eight and and gina our good friend and brilliant editor is working on it and we, i was talking to her and, and greg tilson our post producer about uh one of jay ferguson's lines and maybe it wasn't working and maybe we should take it out uh not because of performance but because we wanted to get to the meat of the scene and then we watched it without it and it was okay and then Gina made the really smart point um, that clever lines, lines that feel funny or surprising, lose their efficacy like chewing gum the longer we watch them. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to remember that most people will only ever see, if they're lucky enough, if I'm lucky enough to have them watch it at all, are only ever going to watch it once. And the power of that line is still threat power, but the effect of that yeah. line is still um, in play for them, that they could be surprised, thrown off, and it might have a positive effect on the scene. It's not deadening it for them because they've never seen it before. So that's a whole other level of time that you have to consider, too, that I'm sick of a lot of it, but hopefully other people won't be, uh, and they'll be watching it in a completely different, completely different mindset. Hmm. The other thing, though, I was going to say that's particularly tricky about timelines is I'm going back methodically trying to drop slang like OK Boomer into the show, <laughs> you know, which wasn't really happening when we were writing it. But I feel like it's going to make the show really, really pop. Yeah. You know, if they're like, how did this guy know all this like boy he's really like i thought it was cool that you you put in that scene where rosario dawson walks up to another character and says i'm gonna tell my kids that this was the property brothers yes no i mean i hadn't done that yet but that's a fucking great (laughs) idea kaya cut this part and that way people (laughs) think it was my idea the other thing chris that you'll appreciate and hopefully people who watch the show will appreciate too that's really fun about post is music so there's there are you know songs that you put in the show are called needle drops and a bunch of them, because I can't help myself and just want to be making mixtapes professionally, I put into the scripts. And some of those choices really work once we get to the stage. Some of them don't. Um, but there's an episode that requires a lot of music um, because of what's happening in the background. And I won't get into it past that. But just to say that it's definitely stretching the limits of our music budget. <laughs> and there are a couple examples where... Um, we were like, well, maybe we can just use kind of a substitute song that sounds like the good song. Right. And then you realize, like, the deathly rabbit hole of most, honestly, not most TV, but a lot of TV, which is just like, well, just play the song that sounds like the other song, but really makes your show sound like a TV show. Right, right. And 
that is a dangerous road. But the interesting thing about that is there clearly is a robust industry just out there for people with like access to a studio to be like, you know, I'm just going to make a song that kind of sounds like if you a need a song, like you, if you, you you wanted Arctic Monkeys, but you just can't quite yeah. come up with the money. <laughs> no, no. So so you will find a song from the cold orangutan. Right. You know, and it's and it's <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it, it's just a little, 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 little bit different. You know, like like oh, here's a song that kind of sounds like New Radicals, and it's called uh, you know, you receive what you put into the world, and it's just kind of in a different tuning. Right. That is a sick gig. That is a really nice Well, we racket. always have that to fall back on if podcasting doesn't work out for us. We harmonize beautifully. Yeah. We always have. <laughs> um, Andy, I'll let you go. I'll let you get back to it. Sounds like you're very busy. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with my conversation with Amanda, and then Andy and I will be back on Monday to talk about Watchmen and Mandalorian and everything else. Quick question mm. before I go. What is the background music for the segment where Kaya explains things to us that are happening on Twitter? Is it also the Chernobyl music? Because I think it should be. <laughs> we have to come up with a Kaya corner music stab. I think I think Chernobyl does it, but I'll leave it to her. Always a pleasure. Everyone should know this parking lot is just doing great. It's you know I almost got run over by a, a hybrid a moment ago because it didn't make noise. And I didn't even stop talking. I, well, I got to tell you, it's not going much better over here in PS1. It sounds like Santa Claus is above me dragging bags of toys back and forth across the ceiling. So I'm going to go investigate that. Uh, Andy, we'll talk to you on Monday. Great job, Bransky. See you, right. Great, great job. Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When you're driving and want to listen to your favorite Ringer podcasts hands-free, just say, Hey Google, play the latest episode of the Rewatchables podcast. Okay, here's the latest episode of the Rewatchables, The Shining, with Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Chris Ryan. Hey Google, pause podcast. A little help hands-free, just say, Hey Google, to get started. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by American Express. I am one of the lucky few with a commute in LA that only takes about 15 minutes. I know. it's uh, I should probably keep that to myself because most people get mad at me. But I still make the most of my drive by listening to my favorite podcasts on my way to and from work. I'll get a head start on shows like House of Carbs, Binge Mode, or The Big Picture. And then I'll finish up the episode when I get to the office. It's a great way to ease myself into the day. No matter what your morning commute looks like, you can ease your mind a little bit knowing that with Green from Amex, you're getting three times points on travel, including transit, like taxis, ride shares, subway swipes, and even ferry rides for those of you who get to enjoy a nice breeze on your way to work. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash green from Amex. Terms apply. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Watchmen. Can't get enough of HBO's Watchmen? Now you can go deeper inside the show. Critics have called your new TV obsession with the official Watchmen podcast. Hosted by Watchmen executive producer and writer Damon Lendeloff and Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl, the new podcast explores narrative choices, uncovers Easter eggs, and examines the show's connection to the groundbreaking graphic novel and to modern events. A reimagining of the world originally seen in the groundbreaking 1980s graphic novel of the same name, Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America, where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters are blurred, and the only true superhero is nowhere to be found on Earth. Stylized, darkly funny, and profoundly human, the series stars Regina King, Gene Smart, Don Johnson, and Jeremy Irons, and features music from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Watchmen is available on streaming and on demand. And catch new episodes Sundays at 9 p.m. on HBO. Then listen to the official Watchmen podcast available on all major podcast platforms.
Now I'm joined by Amanda Dobbins to discuss episodes five through seven of season three of The Crown in our ongoing discussion about season three. Amanda, welcome back. Hello, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm like tingling. These episodes are so good. This is when they really just hit the highway. It's amazing. Yeah. And I guess uh, I want to talk to you about the sidelining of Queen Elizabeth by the coward Peter Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) Is he a coward or is he brave? But I want to know how you feel about this sort of Elizabeth as almost cameo slash supporting Mm -hmm. actor in these episodes and, and somewhat through the season so far. I honestly think they haven't done it soon enough. And if Peter Morgan is a coward, it's because he started with episode one instead of episode four, Right. I think. And with, you know, all respect to the people of Aberfan, and I thought that was a very affecting episode and illuminating and obviously taught me a lot about a tragedy in history that I wasn't super familiar with. But there's a lot of throat clearing in this season. Mm-hmm. And some of it's necessary because they just completely changed the cast. Yeah. And that's jarring. And... I think whatever the first two episodes of this show would have been, we all would have been like, huh. Absolutely. What's going on? But I think that this season just really clicks into drive when you get back to the family tensions and all of the internecine palace drama Mm -hmm. that really starts, I think, with Bubbykins. Yeah. Um, Yes. But certainly in episodes five and six, which you and I were just like, texting excitedly about last night because it's an incredible episode of television. Yeah, And episode six is the Prince Charles episode. I don't think either of us are going to try. We're not going to try to pronounce the Welsh um, it, the, title. It's, it's Prince of Wales is what it translates oh, it is? to, I believe okay. so. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Welsh seems like a beautiful and very difficult language to learn. But it, that is when the major tension mm-hmm. of this season comes into play. And the tension is... The crown versus the queen and who should be, like, who should get attention and these two people vying for it and mothers and sons and visibility and power and family. Whether or not we're doomed to become our parents. Exactly. So I think that in order to make some of those points, you got to put the queen to the side a bit. I think also just in practical TV terms— a lot more fun when you get some young people in the mix. Yes. So, obviously, that episode uh, six that you're referring to yeah. really, like, is, is you can feel the new blood. Yes. And And in this, in this, in some ways, this season, other than that episode, is about retaining your usefulness as you get older. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in some ways, the coup episode with Mountbatten is about that. It's him sort of saying, like, I've now been sidelined by life, and Alice is telling him, you know, it's our lives are over. Right. It's like our it's our job to just sit there and watch essentially. And in the Moon Dust episode, Philip is sort of longing to have a life of meaning and to go out and explore and have adventures and be of use. And essentially, like finds out that he's having a crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. The only person who seems to be at peace and understand all this is Elizabeth. Yeah. So even in her limited scenes, the stuff that Olivia Coleman is doing. And they do give her that moment, the her Kentucky moment. Like, she does have this slight reverie about, like, what could have been. The unlived life speech. Yeah. Which is pretty heartbreaking. Yes. And they give Olivia Coleman moments. I mean, when she has the showdown What's with What's that Prince guy's name? Pouchy? Porchy. Porchy. Poor Pouchy. Pouchy would have been funny. His father is also called Porchy. And right. so there's, like, a whole bit in the first season that's, like, a who's on first between <laughs> Philip and Elizabeth, but just, like, Porchy. And she has this scene with Prince Charles at the end of the the Wales episode 
with the, the showdown in her bedroom, which is extraordinary. They're, no one does. <laughs> they're giving Olivia Coleman stuff to do, mm-hmm. but this idea that the queen is the center of the show is maybe in question. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways it's like very interesting from a TV perspective because you do want characters and there is like you might get tired of the same person going through the same thing. And if the character's arc is to try to get to a place of stability and being able to bear it, that's mm-hmm. great for the character and really, really boring for TV. Yeah. So it's good to have all the other all the other characters. You know, also anecdotally, the reviews I've heard from my friends are it's great, but I miss Margaret. Yes. So, Do they miss Margaret or Vanessa Kirby? They miss Vanessa Kirby. But it, there is, on TV, you want a lot of different characters and a lot of different drama. Yeah. And so for this television show, which is about people trying to achieve balance to work, you got to keep throwing other people in. Yeah. And in a specific job that they're doing, their work is about the suppression of their individuality. Yes. And uh, I, I've, I've really loved the the lattice work of the themes throughout this season. I mean, you could just sort of sit back and take this show in. This is the best, the best television is like this, where you can just sit back and when a character walks into a room, the enormity of the moment hits you and you're just like, oh my God, look at all the detail of set design and the costume design and the cinematography and everything that's happening. Or you can actually look in between the lines and find all this this resonance and this meaning to what's happening between these people and what it means to the world around them. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think at some point there are certain episodes that I've I was I've been reading these novels by J- this British writer named Jonathan Coe, and he he reminds me a lot of the this what I'm seeing in The Crown, not necessarily in subject matter, although they're both writing about England in a certain way. But there are points where you're like, oh, it's this is a little cute, like the it's very on the nose what you're trying to tell me here. But sometimes that works. Yeah, it is playwriting. There are structures. There are themes. There are. You could you could diagram mm-hmm. these episodes really really elegantly, and they would just like be perfectly clear. Which I'm a grammar nerd, so I'm just like really excited yeah, right yeah. now talking about that. But yeah, they are compact. They are each episode is about some historical event and what the historical event reveals about these people's inner lives. It, in a lot of way, it's kind of like you know episodic old school cable television. Mm-hmm. It's like a procedural, but yeah. it's like about history. But I think. There is such a firm grasp of the meta narratives and where these characters are going over time, and like what the historical event- events mean, but also like the historical weight of these characters. Sure, that makes kind of the mundane plot of the week thing um, more compelling. Yeah, and and we've said Shakespearean a lot, and I don't think it's a coincidence that episode six, our favorite episode of the season so far, ends with the Hollow Crown mer- yeah. uh, monologue from Richard II. Yeah. Because they are, he is definitely trying to do modern Shakespeare. So we, you haven't watched Hollow Crown. That's the, the, no, the, the miniseries. The miniseries. So the, I, I really want to check this out, but the BBC commissioned essentially, do they call it the Henriad? Like, what is the all the histories that all the, the British kings plays, right? If you told me that they called it the Henriad, I would believe that. And it's Richard II through yes. the Henrys. Yeah. yeah. So and and it basically stars every British actor. Yeah. It's like Patrick Stewart, Rory Kinnear, Ben Wishaw, Tom Hiddleston, uh, John Hurt. Gosh, I'm think I'm forgetting like a hundred people. Cumberbatch is Cumberbatch in there. is Richard the third. Judy Dench. Yeah, Dench. Yeah. Jeremy Irons, Ben Wishaw. <laughs> yeah. Just reading off the Wikipedia page here. Which is just like a- actors in England. Right. Yeah. Um <laughs> But I did see the Richard II episode, the one that we're wish I'll mm-hmm. play. So I, I remember that speech from there, and I obviously remember it from just 
being around Shakespeare to some extent. But yeah, you're right. It does feel like in a perfect world, that's Morgan's ideal, right? Yeah. Because he's writing a history of kings, but he's telling a story of a country. Yes, and he's clearly borrowing on the mythology that Shakespeare created around those people to create England to create a modern mythology mm-hmm. of the UK. That is, um, and it is a mythology. It's both a wistful portrait of a country that does not exist anymore and also an indictment in a lot of ways of a system that does not fit mm-hmm. anymore. But I think it can work on that level as well as just being really fun to watch because they just do fun historical stuff. And yeah. you're like, did Mountbatten, a.k.a. Charles Dance, really try to do a coup with the Bank of England? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. And the answer is yes. Yeah. It's I'm, always yes, this happened. Yeah, and and they they will massage little things. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think that I was reading that Mountbatten had already retired by the time but like the pound had been devalued or something like that. Like right. he retires in 65, but in 67 it is when they said it or right. something. But he was part of like a conversation with some media barons in the Bank of England about about taking over. I love, we're going to get, get started yeah. with the episodes if you want. Yeah, yeah, My favorite part of Coup mm-hmm. is the reading about Coup's montage. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like just, the five successful elements to staging any Coup. Yes. I was <laughs> like, you invented Wikipedia. You invented Quora, but what it was, I was also just imagining Mountbatten going to the library and being like, do you guys have books on coups? Right. Yes, it's all libraries. Like, specifically, like, successful ones. You know, and like, what? Maybe, like, any guy, uh, <laughs> a lot of time on his hands, but a lot of military experience, really powerful friends. <laughs> what would that guy need to know, hypothetically? And then he just does like an advertising presentation yeah, in 2019. The- it's like you can see the Barnes and Noble book that he is writing. He's, and, he makes yeah, the deck. It's really, <laughs> really, really good. He needs PowerPoint. Um, yeah. So we could talk about Elizabeth and then we can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I thought the Kentucky stuff, the horse stuff with with Elizabeth Weil, that was like the, the strongest connection, I feel like, to the Claire Foy Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. But it's also generally how you're feeling about keeping the, that other show in your mind, that the Claire Foy first two seasons version of the show when you're watching Olivia Coleman. It's interesting. I think I've let it go as we get further in. Mm-hmm. It was all I could think about in the first four. And I, and I was thinking a lot about how the character seemed slightly different. I think Olivia Coleman is a naturally funnier mm-hmm. actor. She's She has comedic timing, and so they are using the queen a little bit more for comedic relief all of them actually i don't know if you've noticed the reaction shots in season three are tremendous yeah just a lot of stills of people just looking really stone-faced but in a way that communicates how pissed off they are yeah it's great stuff but i think probably by season five it's kind of settled in or they're you know they're using the situational similarities so you've seen Claire Foy do sure. the horses and now you see Olivia Coleman do the horses and you're like oh yeah horses the queen also like really likes horses <laughs> she just like really really IRL likes horses and i think it just just so you know you can still there's still photographs taken of her she's 93 or 2 or 3 years old now yeah and it's still just like Riding her horses every day, they let her do this, and they don't make her wear a helmet. Or they probably are just like, like everything after this is gravy. Like the, we're we're in the yeah. black. You can just and ride the, a horse. The queen is also really short, mm-hmm. IRL, and so the photos of her, or it's just like this tiny woman in a truly giant anorak, like the largest coat you've ever seen, just like 
plodding around on a horse at mm-hmm. the age of 92. It's some great visual theater. For, <laughs> anyway, but there is a clip that you can watch of uh, Queen Elizabeth at the racing track watching one of her horses and being really into it. And it was very clear that that was a reference for this this scene yeah. when Queen the Queen is at the at the track. And I had that in my mind so that I was more thinking about Olivia Coleman in respect to the actual queen. Sure. As opposed to Claire Foy, which is, you know, not everyone's going to have that reference, but I think they've gotten there transition-wise for me. It, I liked the that whole sequence and that whole part of the sh- episode because you can read it as, how ridiculous is it that this woman yeah. is spending all this money mm-hmm. flying around the world for a month to look at horses and talk about hiring and building new training facilities and mm-hmm. getting grass brought over and all this in excessive stuff while mm-hmm. the, the economy is crashing in England. And you can also read it as what a tragedy that this person yeah. is doesn't get to be happy in their life. Yeah. And it's a tremendous Olivia Coleman performance because she really does become more animated in this episode. Like when she's talking to other the other people, suddenly she speaks flawless French and she just seems really alive. And they're, she's sharing sandwiches with Porchy and she's like smelling the different condiments. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's definitely like a curious, awake person as opposed to this sort of this stodgy, reserved... I don't really know what's going on, Queen, of the first four episodes. So it is really sad. I think critics of the royal family, of which there are a ton this week, which we should kind of talk about at some point. Oh, yeah. But um, and of this show might say that it's it, it is too sympathetic. But I I do kind of think can't, she just, like, looks then just ridiculous. Don't watch the show. <laughs> right. I mean, she looks ridiculous. Yeah. They're going around. There's literally a coup going on because she can't. She's just looking at horses mm-hmm. all the time. So I think it, it's there in the text to, for you to read it in a sure. different way, which I appreciate. Uh, I love—I mean, we've we talked about the, the taking the books out. Charles Dance, mm-hmm. just skin a moose in front of me like you did in Game of Thrones. Read books. <laughs> do whatever you got to do. I, he's just such a remarkable actor. The job— like when she says to him, the job is to do nothing. Yeah. That's like the amazing part about this show is if you're talking about a bunch of people whose ideal state is in a state of nothingness. Yeah. And yet there's just all this drama and and emotion surrounding them. It really is just excellent writing. It's fantastic. It's also, it makes for great TV. In real life, as we have learned this week with Prince Andrew, it makes for terrible, actual terrible monarchy. I mean, yeah. and that is the real tension yeah. between it. It's It's amazing that... They the things that they absolutely just cannot tolerate to survive in real life are the things that make this show so fascinating. Yes. Do you want to talk about Prince Andrew? I mean, my man's basically not in the royal family anymore. Because, Makes a brief cameo in Moondust. Right. Uh, he does <laughs> and seems really excited. But I don't know if you watched his interview on the BBC. I did. He was, uh, he's been associated with Jeffrey Epstein for a decade now. They were photographed together. He, his relationship has been under scrutiny for several years, and he finally decided to give an interview. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary television. You got to say that. It's a tonic in comparison to The Crown itself. There's some real, like, oh, this is what these people are really like. And I I will say I went back to rewatch some of the episodes with, like, a slightly different perspective. Like which ones? Well, I I guess I just rewatched these three, and I was a little more watching the queen gallivanting around looking at horses, being like, oh, you're not paying attention. Sure. And you guys are kind of out of it. And even as she's giving that speech, which I think is just like a tremendous Olivia Coleman speech of the unlived life, and I would mm-hmm. have been very happy doing this. And I'm like, oh, you would have been very happy being super rich and flying around the country looking at horses to compete with the Aga Khan? Yeah. Me too, fam. <laughs> 
So it literally Are you a, you're not a horse else. girl IRL though? No, I mean the horses seem too smart for me to trust them, you know? Like they have their own There's is there an IQ level that you like prefer <laughs> no, your animal well, to have? They horses are really smart. Mm-hmm. And so I, they could do whatever they want. And I don't like, like I don't like calculus. What are you talking? <laughs> but it's just like when I'm facing off with them. I don't think I'm not <laughs> convinced. So now I'm imagining you like hand. you're like guys. You know you've tried a lot with the Terminator franchise. <laughs> I don't think we're talking about what could really rise up and destroy us, which is horses. But they honestly probably could. Yeah. They're very powerful. They're beautiful, majestic animals that are also like, I am not going to take any shit from you. But also give me a carrot. Well, (laughs) I'm also like, give me a carrot a lot. That's like the story of capitalism, okay? (laughs) I'm just saying. But I I do think they're beautiful. And I feel like all the accoutrement of horses seems really great, which as I understand it, are like lush green fields and like lots of parties. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. And I like the outfits. Yeah. Not the jockey outfits, like the— One bad beat for horses is, like, you kind of can't come back from a broken leg. That's true. (laughs) So (laughs) that might be— I mean, there are— One one hurdle, not to scare any horses by putting hurdles up in front (laughs) of them. Humans do have the upper hand in certain situations, but I'm just saying— Like thumbs. Don't underestimate a horse, Okay. okay? All right, fair enough. Any other thoughts on the coup? I just thought the cake was really funny. They give uh, Mountbatten a farewell oh, cake, yeah. and it just is a cake that just says farewell. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like, no one eats it, so yeah. he has to walk out through the rotunda with all of the white men singing all things signed to him. Yeah. And there's just a man behind him carrying a cake. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> What unbelievable bullshit. Oh, wait. There was one more thing. So the he gives a speech at some point. Not really clear to who. Yeah. Oh, and when he's doing his, uh, his his like, we soldiers know what, yeah. what like, really what it's like. Yeah. yeah that's what I wanted to talk yeah. about. Because he's, like, he literally, his argument is, remember when we, like, died on bayonets, like, real yes. men? In, he in, just in, invokes <laughs> dying on a bayonet. Yes. As this sign of, like, the, of the glory of days gone by. One thing that I really to flag. love about the 50s and 60s, especially in England— it just seems like people went to a lot of speeches. <laughs> Have you noticed that? They really did. It's just like, what are you doing today? Oh, God, Mountbatten's talking. I just cannot wait, man. Like, it's true. I mean, I guess they didn't have TV, so you would, if you wanted to, like, learn about science or something. Yeah, they had, like, a vaudeville comedy show on yeah. the BBC. Yeah. And then it's, but if you wanted to just basically, like— Are you thinking about Howard's End here? When they meet at Howard the Howard's End, and all, the, the, all these Jonathan Coe books, people are constantly yeah. going to, like, ooh, somebody's giving a talk on this tonight. Right. It's like, what? How much? I guess that's podcast. I guess so. But it's different when there's an audience and yeah. it's on a schedule and then there's a Q&A. And it's raining. And it's a Q&A. <laughs> yeah, it's a Q&A. I, like, how much money do you think that you would have to be paid to go to, like, a Mountbatten speech? Right? Not a Mountbatten speech, but a similar Oh, like, just, like, some guy DOD giving a speech? guy who's yeah. just, like, here's what I think about Bolivia? Yeah. Like, $1,000. <laughs> honestly. Like $10,000. TV's so good right now. I'm not, I'm not going. Um... We can yeah. we can put a pin in that because I want to okay. give us a lot of time for Hot Prince. Hot Prince Charles, man, move over, Hot Priest. He is hot. He's Hot Prince Charles. I I'm I'm proud of them. I will say there is like a fidelity in the ears, mm-hmm. and also I don't know how much time you've spent listening to tape of Prince Charles talking, the real Prince Charles. Uh, I've listened to enough yeah. to know that this is just an uncanny like voice work. I, I don't know whether he's an amazing mimic or they just, he got the accent down, but it's really weird. It's like Prince Charles. So this talking. is the biggest question I wanted to ask. Yeah. You. And, and you, you know, you talked about Andrew for a second there, but how hard is it for you to get away from what you know about what becomes of Charles when you're watching in this episode? 
oh, interesting. I don't even think I'm trying. So I think because so much of this show is based on some sort of knowledge of these people, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Queen Elizabeth is globally like one of the most famous women alive, right? Just if you think about how many places and like for how many years she's been famous. And this family is, I think, as Brian Phillips put it in a recent piece on The Ringer, like the most famous family in the world. Probably, yeah. Just statistically. So I have always thought that this show is working with at least a really, really basic knowledge of like, oh, it's Queen Elizabeth. And I think if you know anything else about Queen Elizabeth, you know about Charles and Diana, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that even in the beginning, it's working with the basic knowledge of he was in a, he was married to Prince Diana and he's not king yet. Don't right. you think? Yeah. And that's like him not being king yet is all you really have to know when you're watching this like very young, handsome, he's what, like 21 or 22 in this, in this episode? Yeah. For his I investiture, yeah. I think. Um, 19 or 20, yeah. To kind of understand. So 69, 60. I think it's 69 is the investiture, yes. Okay. Let so, me ask you a little bit about how these things work, if okay. you can tell me. Why isn't, is he, he can't become king until she dies? Mm-hmm. But her mother is alive and was, and she became, because her father was king and father he was died. King and he died and she was the heir. I see. Through the line of succession. And so then she becomes queen. And then there is, I believe, in monarchy, like a mechanism called abdication for someone to step aside. Mm-hmm. And for the next, and to designate their heir as the new king. But as you'll recall from season one, Mm -hmm. the abdication of Elizabeth's uncle, Uncle David, who then becomes the Duke of Windsor, who was also a Nazi, as you recall from season two, perhaps, Mm -hmm. married Wallace Simpson. His abdication is such like a, a family trauma because it makes her father the king and he was not supposed to be king and he right. was so anxious about it. That's what the king's speech is about. And then Elizabeth, who was never supposed to be queen, as she even says in that unlived life speech. Yeah. They're, but they're so obsessed with the abdication and how it never should have happened and it's a dereliction of duty. So she'll never give it up until she passes Basically, away. they think that she, like no one thinks she'll ever give it up. That's why she's on all these horses. Yeah. Do whatever you want. <laughs> um, if I taught TV writing, I would I would show this episode. It's unbelievable. Both because it's so still and nuanced and surprising and idiosyncratic, and you, and even though it follows a couple of very like well worn tropes about, I mean, it essentially is a mini King speech, mm-hmm. you know. In mm-hmm. it, it is a Goodwill Hunting, Finding Forrester kind of like the teacher who unlocked me story, but the evocation of like this. Seaside Welsh town, it's a college town. The feeling of just these slight little points where you're like, oh, things are changing in the world. Like the kid listening to rock music next door to him. The ideas about like national identity underneath a a colonial empire. It's just so well done. And at the heart, there is a heart. There is this kid. And no matter what you think about royals or Charles or, or all the bullshit that comes later, you kind of just and 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 even if you haven't seen Paterfamilias, the episode from the second season, mm-hmm. I think, where we see kind of like why he's so fucked up in the first place right. because of what he gets put through at boarding schools. You're just like, oh, the god, like this is another one, and it's so tragic because of what we see in Coup, where where we see 
Elizabeth, of all people, should know about the right. unlived life. Yes. But she, you know, it starts so cleverly with um, the entire family telling Charles that mm-hmm. he has to go to Wales. And, you know, great blocking. He's seated on one side and the entire family is lined up like the establishment against him. And they give a, they give the queen the really harsh, kind of unexamined, just like you have to do it sort of dialogue that is extremely reminiscent of what her mother, the role that her mother played in the first two seasons of The Crown. And right. you just kind of see this cycling through generationally. In addition to Powder Familias, I was really re- reminded by Smoke and Mirrors, which is the fifth episode of this first season. Mm-hmm. But it's Elizabeth's coronation. And in a lot of ways, this is a mirror episode of it. You know, there is obviously like the ceremonial center um centerpiece where someone is like quite literally being crowned and they give this same speech of like my liege of life and limb. Mm-hmm. In in the first season, it's Philip kneeling before Elizabeth to say that, but he doesn't want to. And and the tension there is about their relationship and whether she's going to be a queen or a wife or mm-hmm. both. And how does she negotiate the two? And in this one, it's is she going to be a mother or a queen? And is he going to be a son or a king? Mm-hmm. And can those relationships exist? And what does it do to the people in the relationships who are trying to navigate the two things? And the answer, it's nothing good for either of them. But it's it's so rewarding from a writing and mechanical perspective to, like, to look at this episode and look at the first season and kind of see, oh, there are even parts of the speech that are the same. And yeah. they are really putting these people in the same places. And it is a, a generational Epic. Yeah, and then and and even the dynamic that's developing between Charles and Anne, where mm-hmm. Anne's like, I wish yeah. she hated me. Like I, I'm too. Like I wish I, I was enough to right. scorn, you know, right. or enough to to. I, I wish I mattered enough for them to like make me uncomfortable. But like I'm just irrelevant. Right. So then she just gets to live in like a really nice, completely sloppy room blasting Rescue Me and wearing, like, a surf shirt <laughs> yeah. and taking phone calls from Wales and being like, lol, I'm not coming to visit you. Like, chin up, nobody likes a grump, yeah. a grumpy guts. <laughs> yeah. The relationship between Charles and uh, Midward, Millward, I think, mm-hmm. uh, is lovely. His sincere sort of pursuit of understanding the place where he is being forced to rule is is quite remarkable to watch. And they also do the thing where at first he knows nothing mm-hmm. and is shown to be ignorant and not Apons, taking it yeah, seriously, which like, is yeah. also definitely a part of this. Yeah. And I, I do think I credits Josh O'Connor, who plays Prince Charles, and in addition to being hot and having the voice down, is really deft with switching between, like, the genial just trying to please Prince Charles and the, like, slightly kind of wounded Prince Charles. Yeah, Bell and Sebastian Prince Charles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's going through it. Yeah. He'll continue to go through it, I think. And then, you know, they, we get to the end. We have basically, you have three scenes that in any other show would be like, oh, that's probably, probably as good as we can do, mm-hmm. which is essentially the heartwarming moment where he goes and gives his teacher the tongue, British Tongue Twisters yeah. book. And you're like, oh, God damn it. And then he goes and sees Mommy. Oh, boy. And she cuts his head off. That is also, uh, Olivia Coleman is, has the range, as the kids say, mm-hmm. because she goes from just, like, total blankness to just daggers. Yeah, and what's I don't remember what he asks, how he asks, where he's like, are you talking about the country or my family? And she just goes, no one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that ends the conversation. I, the way, and even, like, the little line where it's like, she would hope that this could wait until the morning, but if it's absolutely yeah, necessary, it's you so can come see her. Brutal. Yeah, brutal. I mean, the, the small details and kind of 
how weird their life is. Yeah. He gets home and he has to ask, you know, the doorman essentially. If he can see his mom. If he can see his mother and still has, you know, it's so, so bizarre what these people, how these people conduct, like what a family is. I noticed that when Sylvia and Ted, I think it's Ted, are sitting in bed after mm-hmm. they've had dinner with him, she describes Char- the look on Charles's face when he sees the kid going upstairs with his parents and yeah. being, like, taken care of as shattered, mm-hmm. which I think is the same way that Philip describes his reaction to the singing at the funeral. Yeah. And it, it it's it, just little touches like that where they will re- bring back a word or bring back a turn of phrase or bring back an image mm-hmm. are so effective because you're like, oh, right, when these people come into contact with real life, they— yeah. Break into pieces. Yeah. They don't really know how to handle it. Yeah. So it is really interesting to watch how all of the people around the queen handle it, which is everyone else is letting in emotion and she is kind of receding back yeah. into her role. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's good. It makes for good tension. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how it's going to go. I think the scene that immediately comes after just the really brutal bedroom scene is Charles doing the aforementioned Richard the Second monologue. Hollow Crown Which speech. is like, Josh O'Connor, feel free, yeah. feel free to play Richard II if you Amazing. want. Amazing. Yeah, he's incredible in that. It, it's, I mean, part of me was just kind of like, okay, would like the real Prince Charles ever actually get to do Richard II and do with the Anne Hollow Crown speech audience with Anne in the audience? Yeah. I, like, they don't really put their lives on display that much. I'm just like, this is a little close. You're yeah. probably not allowed to do this. Yeah. But man, does it work. And it, in a lot of ways, it's just like Peter Morgan borrowing a Shakespeare thesis to insert in the literal middle of his season to be like, here is what this season is about. Yes. And I didn't even rate it. <laughs> the greatest English writer did. Yeah. Uh, but it still works. It's yeah. amazing. Uh, honestly, it made, made me go read a bunch about yeah. Richard the Section. But What'd you learn? Well, I you know, I think that like Shakespeare is always difficult to just read, you know, and it, it, you essentially need like someone teaching it to you and you also need to see it performed at the same time. But I, I read a couple of readings of the of that monologue mm-hmm. and it just re- was reminded that like Shakespeare is able to like just inhabit the psychology of another person. Yeah. No, it's it's really well. Inve- in a lot of and ways poeticized, invented you know. the way that sure. we understand history and people. Sure. At least in the English language. So shout out to him. Yeah. I gotta say, Josh Ape- Apex Mountain. Yeah. Apex Mountain. <laughs> also to your point about kind of needing to see it perform to really understand it, a tremendous performance of this by Josh O'Connor yeah. where just he, like, really communicates exactly what this means and how it applies, which I don't think everyone could do. I'm curious whether real Prince Charles could do Can it. Can I put you on the spot? Yeah. You get to stage a Shakespeare play okay. starring any royal of your choice. What's oh, the wow. play and who's the person? I guess this is sort of an electrified fence right now in terms of some of these people. Yeah, well, certain people are no longer doing public duties, so they won't be a part of it. (laughs) Of the Amanda Dobbins production. (laughs) It's also real life. He got retired. No one gets retired. Well, I just didn't know if you had, like— No one is just like, you're fired from the royal family. But he literally got fired from his family, which is 100% deserved. Well, it's it's like Peter Morgan's definitely like, fuck, episode season seven. No, I I was thinking about that. I mean, the really obvious one— is is Lear, mm-hmm. right? I guess you could do a Hamlet with, like, young Prince Charles, but sure. that would just kind of be annoying. I think he, you know, kind of was writing Mooney letters already. You don't need to give him Hamlet's soliloquies. Right. Who else? I'm, I'm all of them. Could Mac- Margaret do anything? 
Yeah, I mean, Margaret's a great Lady Macbeth, right? Yeah. It's interesting that I would gravitate towards the tragedies rather than like a comedy or something like that. Yeah. But the history plays, but I guess they're kind of living in their own history play right now. All right, we can wrap up with Moondust. Okay. Which you and I both love. Love Pop culture about this era of space, the space race. Really do. And I thought, again, very effective if you just want to watch it as like, this was very exciting for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. There are just so many great subtle moments where like, Tobias Menzies' face when Olivia Coleman tells him they asked me because I'm one of the five people on the planet right. that they were like, we need your, your your comments to the alien race. And he's just like, okay. Like, <laughs> and then she, fuck. <laughs> she, she gives her speech. Yeah. And then she gives like a very funny well and he's just like, one of your best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I gotta say, I thought it was just like a very effective description of a midlife crisis. Let's talk about Tobias Menzies for a second. Sure. Hitting it out of the park. He is maybe the—I have spoken about Hot Prince Charles, and I think that um, Aaron Doherty, who's playing Princess Anne, I think she's great. And obviously Olivia Coleman is a, you know, Oscar-winning, world-renowned actress. Mm-hmm. But Tobias Menzies is, 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 the, is the really big addition to me yeah. in, this, in this season. Because I think he's playing the comedy in the right way, uh-huh. and then also the emotional moments— both in Bubbykins, but particularly in this season, in this episode. The monologue they give him at the end, when he's just talking about realizing that he's the moon means nothing yeah. and he's having a crisis of faith. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you noticed, they just, it's really on him the yeah. whole time because he's just doing an incredible take. Yes. I, and he's doing tremendous. it, he's not going over the top. He's yeah. he's doing it like an uncomfortable guy who's never been in a group therapy session because they're not probably allowed to even call it that. It's right. like a study group. Right. Of, you know, um, and yeah, I found that scene very moving. I thought the way in which he manifested all the things that he was doing was like, I don't even know that I'm doing this where I'm, I'm sort of shushing my wife and yeah. I want this experience to be exactly one way. And then he tries to like throw his royal weight around by asking for an audience with these guys. And yeah. everybody's just like, okay, you're a pilot. That's a really great reaction <laughs> yeah. shot when they all cut to Elizabeth and the two advisors just being like, okay. Yeah. And then the detail of those guys having colds. I know. And just sneezing through his, like, I wanted to tell you about how you and me are alike. It's, and they're just like, sure thing. And he's also trying so hard on the interview. I mean, mm-hmm. number one, this shot of him writing the questions is just, it's it's so sweet. It's so and heartbreaking. heartbreaking. Um, and then he gets there and, like, they're just answering on a very rote level. And he's so deftly moves the question back to what he's trying to ask mm-hmm. and is, like, really personable. I think one thing that Tomias Menzies does really well is kind of shows like the full range of Philip's personality because he can be like a very charming debonair guy that, you know, there's that nice moment between him and Elizabeth. I think it's at the end of Coup mm-hmm. when he comes in and gets in a tiff about Porchy and then instead is going to be like, come on no, upstairs. I'm, yeah. Yeah. And sells it. Yeah. And then also his kind of his aggressiveness and the speech that they made him make him give about dentures in this oh, is yeah. like the best yeah. 10 seconds of the funniest 10 seconds of the whole thing because he's really out like he's like there comes a time in every person's <laughs> life and you think he's doing like another Mount Batten bayonet yeah. speech and he's like when you must wear dentures and you're just like ah oh, these this people is, like they're just like cutting ribbons man are trying so hard yeah i think he's i think he's great in it i'm curious what do you think your mood landing would be like, what's the thing that I would be yeah. so jealous about? 
or nor that you just kind of like affix a lot of emotions that have nothing to do with the actual event itself? Uh, that's a really good question. I think when I was younger, uh, a lot of it was tied up in like baseball mm-hmm. and like the baseball hall of fame and like the, like the sort of like, really? Like how young? I like, don't think- but like when I was like 13, I think oh. when I first was aware that like, <laughs> uh, oh, did you mean like recently? Yeah, well, uh, like the, the middle-aged crisis is part of this. I just also didn't know about like 13 year old Chris being really into the baseball hall of fame. What were you angry about? Oh, no, I mean, I think I was becoming aware of my relationship with my father. You know oh, what I mean? Like, so yeah. you become self-aware that, like, your parents are, par- like, are people. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, you have, like, certain things that you can connect with them over. And then, like, all of a sudden, this thing that I, like, liked right. became, like, m- a much bigger deal because it was, like, a way to speak to my dad. Yeah. Uh, but in ne- these days, shit, I guess— I think all of us probably think about politics this way now. It's what I was thinking or in the, my like, mind. You know, like, the news is become, like, why is all all of my emotion tied up in yeah. the campaign and the climate and, you know, homelessness and everything where it's, like, in a way that I don't remember it being the case 20 years ago, right. you know? And I need to meet this person who represents all these things that— I haven't been able to accomplish mm-hmm. or change in the world, but, like, helps me believe. Yes. Who's a stand-in for faith? Because right. I think you're right. And then all, like, like, the mental calculations I've been making over the last year of, like, this is—it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not going to be okay, and that's okay because I'm just admitting that this is where we are going. Yeah. And, and all, like, the, the sort of devil's bargains you make in your head. Yeah, it's very funny. I, I watched this episode with my with my husband because he, he has also really enjoyed Philip this season. And I was like, you got to come watch this one with me. And I asked him what his—actually, no. He really related to it. I don't think he'll mind me telling this. He was like, I really relate to this. He was like, what do you think my moon landing is? And I was like, it's definitely the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> we, we don't need to make this a Your Husband podcast. I was gonna, the fact that I had another answer is really dark. Because <laughs> I was going to say golf. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. similar. Yeah. I mean, it's all athletic. Yeah, pursuits. but it's for me too. I mean, yeah, but sports I just, are like that. I just though, feel yeah. like if I arranged a visit of like Carson Wentz, and help me out with two other Eagles guys, Nelson Aguilar. Miles Sanders. And yeah. Miles Sanders. Yeah. And I was like, what I have done with all of my achievements in the world is like arrange for these three guys right. to come talk to Zach for And then they just minutes. like looked at their phones, sneezed, and, and then asked him where right. he got his pants. Yeah. yeah. And they'd be like, do you like to go shooting? Yeah. And then he'd just be like, the mysteries of the universe are not been solved. <laughs> I think we can trust that your husband would not be looking at Carson Wentz to answer the mysteries of the I universe. Honestly, sometimes I don't know. Uh, okay, so that's five through seven. Yeah. Amazing pieces of television. I really love how this season sort of has like, it's not only is it like its own thing, it's mm-hmm. also very clearly a very sustainable series yeah. now. And that a lot of shows that I watch are often like, fuck, we have to keep making totally. these. Or... We just don't, like, the story is only supposed to be this. And to see a show, we always kind of, like, speculated, like, oh, what would happen if they just kept making Mad Men? But, like, Don Draper wasn't at right. the, you know. What, would they, what the if Peggy they just, story. it was the Peggy story, yeah. and then there was, like, another person, and then there was another person. Could you do that if there was some continuity between mm-hmm. the, and obviously, like, they they decided not to, and they did quite a few Mad Men, so as many as I'm assuming that Peter Morgan plans on making Crown. But it is quite remarkable to be like, oh, wow, I completely see how you guys are going to do this now, where it's like young Charles is a thing and Anne right. is a thing. And you're, this is how Elizabeth is in this show now, even though Olivia Coleman is the biggest star on the show. Right. And it does also that idea of if you know even the most basic British history, you know what's coming. You know that at some point Princess Diana is going to have to show mm-hmm. up. 
which will give it new life and is a totally new era that a lot of people have familiarity with. Yeah. You got you know that Maggie Thatcher's coming up? Gillian Anderson, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, I'm really curious to see where season six is and whether they add a season seven because, like, the drama's still going. Yes, yeah, that's the life. thing. And whether or not, I guess by that point it would be if they do it every two years, and this is season three, so 2022 for four, 24 mm-hmm. for five, and 26 for six. Yeah, it would be like pretty far past Megan and Harry. Right. You know, if you were going to do stuff like that. Yeah. All right, Amanda will be back on Monday, and we'll talk about the last few episodes of season three. I really enjoyed these conversations. Me Thanks too. For Thank them. you, Chris. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Watchmen. Can't get enough of HBO's Watchmen? Now you can go deeper inside the critically acclaimed new series with the official Watchmen podcast, hosted by Watchmen executive producer and writer Damon Lendeloff and Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl. The new podcast explores narrative choices, uncovers Easter eggs, and examines the show's connection to the groundbreaking graphic novel. Stream Watchmen now and catch new episodes Sundays at 9, only on HBO.